Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our weekly matter loading session. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle, and this week we're covering the Indian COVID crisis, the European floods, the troubles in Afghanistan, the 2022 Philippine elections, a new art movement all about standing up, some interesting news about basketball, some horrifying news about football, and some amusing news about the Olympics. Yeah, and before we begin, we would like to thank Jay Postrado for compiling these news articles and tidbits for us to react to. We hope you enjoy. Our first segment is talking about international relations. And to start it off, we'll talk about the Indian COVID crisis. The first thing to note about the Indian COVID crisis is the appointment of new ministers. So the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi appointed new ministers as part of a reshuffled aim at improving the image of the government after its continued COVID-19 crisis and failures. Modi appointed Manshok Laxman Mandavia as the country's new health minister. This was after Harsh Vardhan and his deputy were asked to step down despite initially being the face of the pandemic. Opposition leader P. Chidambaram said the removal of the health ministers and his deputy are proof that the government has failed. Quote, there is a lesson for ministers in this resignation. If things go right, the credit will go to the PM. If things go wrong, the ministers will be the fall guy, he said. The reshuffle also came after the defeat of Modi's political party in April elections in the key Bengal state in the West. Outside of the political changes... The COVID-19 pandemic is also making its reshuffle in India. A record 6,148 deaths were recorded in June 10, the highest single-day death toll in the world since the beginning of the pandemic. There were more than 105,000 deaths in May alone, averaging more than 3,300 deaths every single day throughout May. The worst part about all of this is that the numbers may be inaccurate, especially given their lack of tracking measures and proper diagnoses that lead to a lot of backlogs. India's official death toll is the world's third highest after the United States and Brazil's. A model by the U.S.-based Institute for Health Metrics and Valuation claims that the COVID-19 toll could be more than 1.25 million. India's health ministry last month called out The Economist magazine for publishing a story that said that excess deaths were between five and seven times higher than the official toll, especially since it could have been speculative and misinformed. Kyle, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I think that this is just a general blame game type thing. So it's true, reshuffling the cabinet, reshuffling ministers is an implied concession that something did mess up. So think about what this says about other countries where leaders refuse to replace erring department heads. There's a book by Sandra Reso Di Hardio called Crisis in the Politics of Blame, where the author says that step one in managing crisis communications as a government is to downplay the crisis, uh, either by downplaying it or by saying that people are exaggerating. And you've seen that in multiple countries. But to go beyond that, a crisis could happen within a crisis, right? For example, we have a crisis that is the pandemic. There could be a sub-crisis that we could call a second wave of infections. And where leaders can no longer deny the existence of the ultimate crisis or the pandemic, they can still try to deny the existence of the sub-crises. So basically, every study is saying now that things aren't going as well as we would have hoped. What does it say when a government refuses to acknowledge that a mistake has even happened? And the best way to overcome that is to keep up the inquiries into the existence of the crisis until it's impossible to deny. That's what we saw uh, with Donald Trump 
saying it wasn't really a crisis. People kept inquiring, saying like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Until eventually Donald Trump could no longer deny that there was a crisis that was happening. There was no room for doubt anymore. So Modi, when they replaced the health minister, that is a testament to the power of criticism from the people. There are many more ways that the blame game can come up. For example, there was this the talks about how the buck should stop at Modi, like this new guy should not be the fall person whenever like something screws up. But that's for another time. Would love to talk about how the buck gets passed, but that doesn't happen yet. So we'll just have to wait. But what about the the death tolls, right? For me, what stands out here is the fact that India is challenging, the Indian government is challenging the estimates from the economists saying that, well, that's too low, you're underreporting. What's the lesson here, right? I think the lesson here is even the death toll under the framework of the politics of blame is basically the government trying to downplay the gravity of the crisis, saying that the estimates uh, higher than its own estimates are automatically misinformed when really both India and the economists and other uh, institutes make their own estimates. And they're all just informed guesses at this point. Like we're not really sure in any scenario, how many people are truly affected, but it's part of the politics of blame where the Indian government gets to say that, oh, because we are the ones who are actually handling it, our estimate holds more weight than yours, even if there might be a political reason why they want to keep this estimate at this particular level. And you can see this in many other kinds of crises, like, for example, the EJK crisis that you were experiencing there are actually people in this government that say that there are zero extrajudicial killings because like, it all depends on how you would define what extrajudicial killings are. So it's always a political thing. Even the determination of the statistics could potentially be a political thing that might be affected by the political climate or who's in power. But that leads us to the next part of this segment in which we move away from the Indian COVID crisis. And let's now talk about European floods. And this is something that like, is really affecting me because even though the floods are happening in Europe, some of my family members have personally been affected by the flood lately. So first, let's talk about the emergency and structural responses because Europe has actually a world-leading warning system that issued regular alerts for days before floods engulfed entire villages at least 195 people died, though, in Germany and Belgium because of these floods. And it actually sent more than 25 warnings way before the flash flooding, way before the heavy rains triggered that flooding. The damage to the rail networks in Germany alone amounts to around 1.6 billion US dollars. The German government is promising emergency flood aid for people amounting to 471 million US dollars. The Met Office Hadley Center predicts actually warmer and wetter winters and hotter, drier summers come with an increase in the frequency and intensity of extremes as a direct result of climate change. Basically, the logic here is if, if emissions are not cut and we do not solve the problem of global warming, these things will happen more often. There will be more heat waves, sure, but that will also make summers drier. That will also make rainfalls eventually heavier. And climate science has historically been saying this, but also historically it's been downplayed by media organizations. So like if there's a heat wave, 
news outlets would say it's a perfect time to go sunbathing or to go swimming or to go eat ice cream. What are your thoughts on this though, Nina? Yeah, so I think that this issue affects everyone. It's not exactly new. But I think the first thing to note here is that warnings will not be enough, especially if people don't understand their gravity. So as you mentioned, like almost 25 warnings were released in different areas. They have perfectly fine systems. But the difference is people don't understand the gravity of it, which is why these warnings are never sufficient in actually like ensuring that the harms don't take place. Locally, it's the same problem that we have in the Philippines, right? When you say, for example, storm surges, people don't understand that it acts like a tsunami, even if that's like scientifically not the correct thing to say. But I think that we need to learn how to have better communication regarding a lot of natural disasters and disasters in general, because even in the COVID crisis, communication is what's hindering us from actually achieving herd immunity or getting people to get vaccinated. So I'd say that in terms of communication, the issue of climate crisis, more or less the same, right? But I think it's also important to note that while there were promises made, um, it might be a little bit too late, right? Because not only does it rely on the execution of these projects and initiatives, it relies on it still having a lot of time. And I think that at this point, given the climate situation of the world, it might not be sufficient to be reactive as opposed to be preemptive. But the question now is, do we have time to be preemptive? Even in the Philippines, right? We've made so many promises about making sure that we have better responses to natural disasters. We had Project NOAA, which was successful for a time. But after a while, people forgot about it. As issues pass, people are forgetful and they have other priorities. So my fear is that even if Europe experienced something like this, it's going to go over their heads, right? The same way it has gone over the heads of many Filipinos. So yeah, that's it for, I think, the European floods. Those are my thoughts on it. I think now we can move away from Europe and also talk about what's happening in Afghanistan, especially regarding Afghan militias. So there's a fight currently caused by the U.S. prospects of leaving. The Taliban has been fighting hard across northern Afghanistan for the past few weeks, seizing territory from Afghanistan security forces. It's evident, actually, that in the past few weeks, victories have been reversed as control sort of shifts between the insurgents and the republic. The strategy of the United States here is to exhaust the uh, forces and the, the strategy of the Taliban is to exhaust the forces of the Afghan forces as well, right? So we'd say that it's, at least in my opinion, there is a growing fear right now that the Taliban will inevitably take over when the U.S. troops leave. And that's why currently the term oil is heightened. The lack of government response to all of this can also be seen as alarming, right? Because the government, the government's leader, Sorry, the government's president, Ashraf Ghani, has been seen tolerant of ordinary people taking up arms to fight the Taliban. And this has several implications. These individuals may be used privately by politicians who wish to maintain their status. And they may also be used as human shields by soldiers who are losing the fight. So right now we see a, a rise of ordinary people getting involved in conflict, not just as casualties, but as active fighters. And that may be like very harmful in the long run. At the head of all this is Salima Mazari, a 40-year-old district governor and one of the few women who have reached this position in Afghanistan's male-dominated political landscape. She said that for three and a half years, she has been in the post. 80% of her time has been spent fighting the war 
fighting the war as the Taliban, right? Her leadership skills are evident as she spends her day meeting with local commanders and fighters. So for me, this is an ongoing situation. Though the Afghanistan war has been like a thing for a long time, developments recently are worth looking into, especially with the prospects of the United States leaving and everything being heightened because of that. Kyle, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I, I really wanted to talk about the agreement between the United States and Taliban in which the U.S. agreed to leave because when Donald Trump negotiated for the complete pulling out of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, part of the agreement was that the Taliban would stay away from the Afghan government. But even while the U.S. military was just in the process of leaving, they haven't finished leaving it, we've already seen some movement from the Taliban. This sort of lends credibility to the realist view of international relations, which is you can't really trust people to just do things or not do things just because they promised or just because it'd be better for everyone. There wasn't really anything in the agreement stopping the Taliban from restarting the attacks. Sure, you could argue that it had an interest against the U.S. coming back. So you could have said that you know it was in their best interest to behave. But at the same time, the Taliban might also have thought that, well, Americans today don't want the troops returning to Afghanistan. It's basically a free pass for us right now. Another thing I might note is that the agreement between the U.S. and Taliban was not technically a treaty, so it couldn't be binding as a treaty. Um, so the common wisdom is that only states can be parties to treaties. So if you're a non-state actor, then you can't be a party to the treaty. And the Taliban was not considered a state by the United States. And in fact, every time the Taliban was mentioned in the U.S.-Taliban agreement, there would always be a parenthetical where the U.S. says, oh, by the way, we don't recognize the Taliban as a state. So there's a debate here also about how we should treat organized armed groups like the Taliban or like ISIS, which are increasingly organizing as if they were states. There are three options here, in my opinion. One is to treat them as states even if most countries do not recognize them as states, two, to allow non-state actors to be parties to treaties, and third, not to change anything because we're not supposed to negotiate with terrorists. But that's a completely different debate as well. But what about you know the lack of government response and ordinary people being involved in the fighting? I think this is kind of problematic because it blurs the line with regard to the application of international humanitarian law. Because... Like this conflict in Afghanistan is a long-standing uh, non-international armed conflict. You could argue that it became internationalized because of the presence of the United States. But anyway, this is an armed conflict, which implies that you know international humanitarian law, the rules of engagement, the rules of war, they apply here. And we've talked about in the past in the red tagging episode that the one of the main you know, uh, cornerstones of international humanitarian law is the protection of civilians. But now, because civilians are also taking up arms, fighting, you know, these certain battles, then the line between who could be, you know, uh, an armed person, a military objective for the Taliban, and a regular civilian gets even more blurred. Uh, so that could be very problematic. And they said that it was a human shield that protects an embattled military. That's generally what you do not want to happen, right? Because you want to make sure that if you're a civilian, you, you are protected to the highest degree that we can protect you under international humanitarian law. So now when you 
remove this sort of distinction, it becomes problematic for everyone. And this has happened in the Middle East before, in, in the early 2000s and the early 2010s, where because of the war on terror in the Middle East, there were a lot of times where civilians would actually um, be shot and killed because the American military says that, oh, they are actually combatants pretending to be civilians. So that is a big problem there. For me, I, I take up a more realist view in politics and international relations. So I agree the assessment of what you're saying is right. I think that the Taliban is still going to continue making moves. But of course, it's too early to say the U.S. is still going to leave after a few weeks. So a lot of things can change by then and we'll keep you posted. I think outside of looking at what's happening across different borders, let's look back home and talk about the 2022 elections. Um, but before that, I just want to promote Magiting Cup is still accepting registrants for phase one. It's a tournament that encourages people to vote. So if you are a voter or someone who's going to sign up to vote, we really encourage you to sign up for our tournament. Links will be in the description as well as in the tweet we post alongside this episode. But anyway, let's talk about Duterte's immunity if he were to run as vice president. Because this ended up being a rather big deal in the news recently because President Rodrigo Duterte said that he would, might run for vice president in 2022 to protect him from being lulled, legally liable for wrongdoings, claiming that the position gives him immunity from suit. He said this last Saturday, July 17, during a PDP Laban assembly that discussed the 2022 elections and whether he would run. He said he would because it would grant him immu immunity. However, back when former vice president Binay claimed he would be immune from suit when flaked faced with a plunder case, constitutional law expert Agabin said that the constitution does not guarantee the vice president immunity. Quote, it's only the president who is immune from suit. And that is based on tradition because he or she, well, they didn't say she, but I think she should be there. <laughs> she, she or he is busy handling affairs of the state. But that cannot be said for the vice president. End quote. Kyle, what are your thoughts on this? I think this is very legal. Well, first of all, um, Dean Pacifico Agabin used to be the dean uh, in UP law. Um, wala lang, share ko lang <laughs> But also, like, nice. he's completely correct. Like, that's the reason why the ombudsman was able to sue, uh, Binay, uh, for plunder in, in, I think it was the early 2010s. Like, it became a very big deal in 2015. But originally, there used to be this doctrine called the Aguinaldo Doctrine which says that if you're a politician and you had administrative cases, the fact that you were re-elected was basically a condemnation or forgiveness uh, for those cases. And in 2015, the b camp argued that the Aguinaldo Doctrine extended to plunder. But this was roundly rejected by the Supreme Court. Uh, actually, I kind of feel bad that we need to talk about this because basically, I don't have any qualms about the legal opinion that there is no immunity here. For me, like the assumption here is that we should be able to hold leaders accountable. And only if there is something in either jurisprudence or law or tradition uh, that serves as an exception, like in the case of the president, that's the only time that we can like move away from the general rule that we can hold people accountable. Uh, so I kind of feel bad that we need to talk about this because the way the media covered this was criticized by some because the media was allegedly sensationalizing the issue by acting as if 
Duterte's plan would actually work. And for me, the reporting shouldn't just repeat what Duterte said. Journalists should have the responsibility to check whether the plan makes any sort of sense by, for example, consulting people like Dean Pacifico Gabin. Some people would say that the act of fact-checking is in itself biased, but facts aren't biased, fam. You are if you want to reject fact-checking. Uh, so this leads us to, you know, since we're talking about elections with our president anyway, you know, let's spoil the president's party. Our next bit is about the PDP Laban slate for 2022. PDP Laban was the party of the Aquinos before, you know, there was a split between you know, the Pimentel wing and then the Cojuanco wing. But anyway, there was a split. It used to be the actual, quote-unquote, Dilawan party. But now it's the president's party. Uh, so now they have they released the slate for the upcoming elections. On the list are officials in the Duterte administration, including MMDA Chairman Ben-Hur Abalos, Presidential Communications Operations Office Secretary Martin Andanar, Presidential Anti-Corruption Commission Chairman Belgica, Labor Secretary Sylvester Belli III, Information and Communications Technology Secretary Gregorio Hanasan II, Cabinet Secretary Nograles, Chief Presidential Legal Counsel Sal Panello, everyone's favorite UP law professor, Harry Roque, Transportation Secretary Tugade, and Public Works and Highway Secretary Mark Villar. But also, we've had actors you know, in media personalities that are also part of the possible lineup. So you have Robin Padilla, you have Willier Villame, and also Rafi Tulfo. I'm not a fan of this slate. Um, I <laughs> I think it's a very mixed well, bag. Yeah. yeah, so it's a very mixed bag because there are people here with proven track records. I mean, not to discredit the entire slate, but I feel like those were just people sprinkled in there to give legitimacy to the other non-political actors, right? Like Or literal actors in this case. But the thing is, I think that it's very strategic. Politically speaking, it's strategic and always has been strategic for Philippine political parties to add a little bit of razzle-dazzle to their slates by putting famous political figures, famous celebrity figures, and etc. The thing, though, is will the other parties adjust, given that they already have such a good name recall, as well as a good, well, not perfect, but I would say it's a good slate if you want to win in an election, especially in a country that prioritizes, sadly, not facts, but a lot of the sparkly things that come with politics, like the, for example, the jingles, the name recall, the, the money that people might be getting, the, the lavish promises that these individuals give. And there's a there's a trend here. The reason why we like it or why across the world famous people end up getting political wins is because we tend to trust people that have gotten monetary success, like financial success by being a celebrity or financial success by being a business person like Trump is often seen and translates to thinking that they're good at handling governments. It says more about how we view politics, that we tied capitalism so intrinsically with it, that therefore the more successful a person is, the more we deem them suitable for politics. But of course, it all boils down to what the opposition slate's likely to do. So let's talk about that. The main opposition right now, out of many that exist, is Isambayan. They will announce their nominees for president, vice president, and the 12 senatorial posts, along with the coalition's criteria in choosing these possible candidates soon. 
But this list will not yet contain final bets to be endorsed by this party by 2022. So the coalition plans to still ask the public to vote for their preferred opposition bets by opening an online portal, as Calieja has said, right? But we think, or at least in my opinion, the Isambayan coalition, despite being formed by several opposition figures, has to be careful with its strategy because PDP Laban currently seems to be very sure of what they're doing. While I think the opposition slate is doing something that might be deemed as rather experimental by asking people their opinion. So it's like a secondary layer of voting before the primary voting takes place. What are your thoughts on this kind of strategy? I actually, I don't like it at all because it, it seems like, I, I agree with you that they, they're trying to be experimental. In my view, what you could consider to be experimental is them just not knowing what the hell to do. <laughs> like they know that they should be an opposition. They know that they should be somewhat united, but they don't really know how to go about doing that. So in the past, they said, oh, these are our nominees and almost all of them rejected the nominations. Until such point that like, oh, we shouldn't even talk about whether they accepted or rejected the nominations anymore. Because at this point, the, the news about the nominations was largely irrelevant. So like they, they're really struggling with the PR here, guys. And like there are there are debates here about, you know, should we regret the existence of Isambayan? Like, is it? you know, really working out for us. Like, if we had alternatives, would those alternatives be better? Um, there's also an issue here about uh, how wide should the tent be? Because there were discussions about putting Manny Pacquiao into the list of nominees, right? So, and, and Manny Pacquiao, as we've known, isn't really the staunchest ally that we have with regard to progressive ideologies like fighting for LGBT rights, um, fighting against the death penalty. It seems that just because Manny Pacquiao is criticizing this administration, criticizing the government, that already means that they should be part of the opposition, regardless of whatever else they might stand for. So that is like a challenge that we have to navigate as an opposition where should we really prioritize ideological purity at this point if not if we're going to prioritize unity to what extent are we willing to prioritize unity that is something that should be an ongoing discussion we do not have the answers to this like nina and i 100 we don't have the answers to this i think even we would disagree about to what extent we should make these ideological sacrifices but yeah this is a to everyone is up to debate like you could have your own personal opinion about where that line is but in general i think we should all agree that what the opposition is doing right now is a little bit unorthodox where it, it seems like nangangapa lang sila at this point so we'll see how that turns out yeah i guess now we can talk about the more economic side of things well first of all there is you know a trade deficit that we're looking at um, and basically what it, what it says is during the Duterte administration, imports increased by 14% from 2016 when they were elected to 2019. Exports could only muster a 5% average growth rate. And the reason why this is called a trade deficit is the fact that, you know, when you're computing for the gross domestic product or basically the productivity of the economy, 
one portion of that equation is the trade balance, where you look at the number of exports, you look at the number of imports. If there is more, if there are more imports than exports, then there is a trade deficit. So if you have more imports than exports, what it essentially says is that we do not have enough, so we have to import. So what exports essentially say is we have so much stuff that we can sell to other countries. Imports basically say that we our domestic markets can't handle enough production of something or they're inefficient in producing this so much so that people believe that we need to buy from other countries. So this is the reason why it, it's sort of an indicator of how the economy is going, trade deficits, because it means that the higher the deficit, the less efficient we are in producing certain goods. Um, and the, the Duterte administration allowed the economy to become increasingly dependent on imports for practically all of our needs, including basic food. So think about the fact that we used to be like the biggest exporter of rice, and now most of our rice is, is actually imported. And this just means that we're not really taking care of our farmers. But there is somewhat of an optimistic view despite COVID where people think that the second quarter GDP figures this year would still look pretty good. They said that they're not, you know, the, the finance secretary, Dominguez III, didn't really say what the numbers were. But from May, the unemployment numbers have dropped. Underemployment has dropped. 2.5 million jobs were created last year. So these are definitely good signs. But this doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. It might just mean that we are actually just recovering. But there's another problem here where it's a question of priority. Like, should we prioritize getting people back to work or should we prioritize fixing the pandemic? Because there, you have to recognize that there is some sort of trade-off that should be acknowledged here where a lot of people who are unemployed are unemployed because there are blue-collar workers, they cannot work from home. So if you decrease the unemployment rate, this necessarily means that a lot of these people would have to leave their homes again in order to start working again. So this is like a, a trade-off that we've been having to deal with for the past year. So now you could argue that actually this might be the time to restart the economy, but like take some precautions but sort of start, restart the economy because at this point, those really poor laborers cannot wait any longer. Uh, and recent containment measures imposed since March of this year, more lenient than the severe lockdowns from last year, still threatens the expectations of sharp rebound in GDP growth this year. But the question is, should this be something that we should strive for? Should we really look for a sharp rebound and real GDP growth. Another thing that I feel like, you know, my profs in Econ would like to say is, why don't we explore more borrowing? Like, why don't we explore borrowing more money from international actors like the World Bank? Because the standard here is, a lot of the time, if you cannot afford something, you should be able to borrow money in order to sort of like cushion the the impacts on your budget as as a government. So like revenue can be gotten from taxes, um, or so you call that internal revenue. 
but there's also external revenue which you get from loans. So an unexplored alternative right now would be to increase the loans that we're getting. Um, but right now a lot of people go like, why do we sh- why should we even get loans? We're going to pay off this. But as we've noted several times before, especially in the episode with Nikki Solis, where it doesn't seem like the traditional views of like loans are good for us or not good for us, it doesn't seem like that traditional knowledge or that traditional wisdom carries a lot of weight. So I, I suppose recommended reading or like further study for this would be the episode of John Oliver where they talk about whether or not it's still a good thing or bad thing for loans to happen. The next thing in our list of things to talk about is probably going to be art as a political movement here in the Philippines. So if you're familiar with the Tumindig art movement, then you probably know what this is about already. But if you don't know, that an artist called Tarantadong Kalbo, which roughly translates to troublemaking bald guy, is a webcomic with a slant towards political satire. And it was created by Kevin Raimundo. It became popular over the past months because it criticized a lot of its of the current administration here in the Philippines, but recently made a breakthrough with their recent art, right? So July 17, Tarantadong Kalbo released a cartoon featuring a figure standing up amidst the sea of others bowing down. And the one-word caption read, Tumindig, which means stand up. So the, the lying down figures actually, and coincidentally, and probably purposefully, also looked like the fist bump of the Duterte administration, the iconic fist bump of this administration that they enforce on everyone when they have photo shoots and etc. And the post became popular with people adding their own figures standing up amidst the crowd next to Tarantadong Calvo's main figure. So it grew and basically a lot of artists are standing together to be part of this sort of online protest. But the question now is, and I guess the main question I have with this is, how important is it given that there are other things that need to be done. Of course, this is very um, skeptical of a view. I understand the value of art, but I do understand people as well who call this very performative. But overall, I think it's pretty cool, like solidarity between artists, especially given that a lot of artists are trying to counter this movement as well. So what are your thoughts, Kyle? For me, the idea that this is just performative, it's ridiculous to me because like, what do you expect artists to do? Like... Gawa sila ng meme that punches people in the face. <laughs> like, like what other thing would you expect artists to make that would not be quote-unquote performative by these standards? So I, I don't agree with the idea that it's it's just performative just because it doesn't actually change anything. I think it's enough to I know, for artists to inspire others to say that it's okay to dissent to say that other people are standing with you, those kinds of things. So like, that is what it was for. It wasn't there to like literally change society as we knew it immediately, right? It's a symbolic gesture. But symbols, you know, mean a lot. And that's the exact reason why art can be so powerful. Because when you're looking at a picture of sentient fists, right? You don't actually go like, wow, sentient fists, huh? That really changed my world. It's more of like they represent something. The fist was there to represent um, political leaning. So if you were bowing down, um, you were prostrating yourself for this government, you would be doing the fist bump thing. But if you raise your hand, that is like, you see that in a lot of revolutionary imagery, the raised fist. 
because that means like you're standing up against an oppressive system. And I feel like, first of all, we're not, you know, encouraging people to break laws, but it's okay to dissent. So that's basically what it was saying, that it was okay to dissent. And the reason why every artist was putting their own spin on, on it is, is that it's a symbolic assertion of people's own individuality and their own individual rights. Because as you can see from a lot of these photos, everyone else, like, they just looked homogenous because they fell into the, grab of the trap of groupthink. But here, every single person individually and as a collective, they're all coming together to um, dissent. But another important and sort of interesting thing here is there are now a lot of attempts from other people to hijack this trend. So for me, the most um, interesting one is a hijacking attempt by the people who are encouraging Sarah Duterte to run. So they superimposed a, a picture of Sarah Duterte um, doing the fist bump, but their fist in, in the fashion of like the artsy-fartsy, like whatever, um, their, Sarah Duterte's fist had the infinity gauntlet. So she was basically Thanos. She had a lot of weapons. She was holding um, Thor's hammer. So basically, Sarah Duterte was to be portrayed as tough on crime. You know, they're going to hurt you. But you have other people saying, well, yeah, thanks for acknowledging that you are an oppressive mad titan so like you have these hijacking attempts but some of them aren't really that convincing but that's what you would expect from art so whenever you have art debates one part of it is it needs to be simple enough so a lot of people can get on board but if it is too simple it becomes sort of easy to hijack so this is one of the ways that you can talk about that and say that because this particular trend in particular isn't that broad it was a bit more difficult to hijack because there's no way for you to spin it, right? There's no way for you to spin the same meme or the same trend to make it favorable to this administration, right? So this is an interesting thing to talk about culture and it is a nice segue point for sports because like there is a lot of things going on in sports right now that really tell a lot about our culture. The first thing is... Um, the first story that I want to talk about is how the Milwaukee Bucks won an NBA championship. And this is important because this entire time, there's this culture within the NBA that was saying that in order to like win, in order to succeed, you need to have star players. But what happened in the Milwaukee Bucks is they won with homegrown talent that, and they won the championship um, without trading for superstar talent. So they won their second NBA championship with basically one leg tied behind their backs or one arm tied, be tied behind their backs. Because traditionally, you have drafts, you have trades, you have free agents. And these are all used by managers of teams in order to win, to use, into, to use in constructing a roster of players. But the Bucs, they didn't have the ability to trade for um, really talented players. So they really had to focus on their own homegrown talent. So you can see here that the common wisdom that, you know, you need to have like really, really talented people. The Milwaukee Bucks was able to show that talent really isn't everything. Um, in a lot of cases... You know, prioritizing the talent that you already have, like um, fostering them, nurturing the talent that you already have can do miracles against even superstars. So that's the thing that we see in Milwaukee Bucks. It's sports, but it says something very profound about our culture as a society and how we treat 
talented people, but I also understand that there also a dark. There's also a dark side to sports. Like one is the Euro finals. Nina, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I talked about the Euros in the previous episode. Yeah, the next thing we're going to talk about is the Euro finals, and the England fans are basically very upset because before the finals took place, they were all chanting that it's finally coming home, the championship's coming home, but it didn't, and that led to a lot of rowdy behavior from fans. And for the second time in a week, the English Football Association has been charged by the UEFA over fan behavior while England played at the Euro 2020 inside the Wembley Stadium. The English FA was previously hit with three charges after fans booed. The Danish national anthem ahead of the semi-final, shine the later laser pointer at the face of the Denmark goalkeeper, and then lit fireworks inside the stadium. So the English FA was fined a total of thirty-five thousand dollars by the UEFA for those offenses, right? And the English Football Association announced Monday that it was investigating fan behavior from Sunday's European Championship final between England and Italy because a number of people without tickets rushed inside the stadium, rushed through the security check. Before the start of the match, so this is like a great display of what fans are able to do, especially when they're all riled up. And this is also a good example of how the football association was held liable for the behaviors of fans. And this is a classic motion. And I think the importance of this piece of matter is that it showcases that something can be done and probably should be done because of it. Yeah, I agree. And actually, I didn't initially see the connection uh, with the classic debate, but I totally agree with you. And for me, it just talks. It speaks about this really toxic culture of hooliganism, which is also, by the way, a- another classic um, debate about hooliganism in sports. Where for some reason you see a lot of people getting really riled up and potentially very violent. So what you can see here, because it's the Euros, right? It's a lot of it is tied to a country or a state's sense of national identity. So you could see like how terrifying or horrifying um, nationalism in sports can be when it spins out of control. So speaking of nationalism. I feel like we can end today with a story about the Olympics because the Olympics, as you know, there is a panini. <laughs> so the 2021 Olympics is turning into like an, a really big bust because Japan has recently had this really bad um, surge of COVID cases again. Uh, so they prevent; they are now preventing spectators from viewing the sport, um, and also in order to protest this. Uh, Toyota pulled out all of its ads, and that's a big deal because historically, the International Olympics Committee had Toyota as one of its key corporate sponsors. So a lot of people are saying that it's a twenty billion dollar bust for Japan. So why is Toyota pulling out ads? It was because three athletes have now tweet. Uh, three athletes have now tested positive. For COVID nineteen inside the Olympic Village,、uh, and this was just days after Japan declared the fourth state of emergency in Tokyo. And actually, sixty eight percent of Japanese people doubt that the IOC can even control the spread of infection.、Uh, so that's actually the reason why a lot of people believe that、um, a star country is dying as well,、um, because. In basketball, for example, Americans have struggled in their preparations for Tokyo.、Um, they during their warm-ups,、um, they were defeated by Nigeria and Australia, followed by back-to-back wins over Argentina and Spain.、Um, historically, you know, they they included professional players, so they they had Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. 
But for this Olympics in particular, there is a concern that it would be a repeat of 2004, where Argentina upset them in the semifinals before going on to beat Italy. Um, and you can make an assumption where it, it probably isn't a secret that the biggest country to be hit by COVID is the United States as well. Um, but also because of COVID, there was this sort of speculation about cardboard beds that were being made by Japan for the athletes. And the conspiracy theory here is the reason why the beds are made of cardboard is so that you could prevent people from cuddling or having sex, stuff like that. So there was a lot of like memes about this because they were saying that, well, these are some of the most attractive people in the world. Um, a cardboard bed will not stop them. Like as long as there are floors or whatever, you will not stop people from being intimate. So it probably isn't the most effective thing if this was actually the intent for this. But also there are lots of people who are saying that that actually wasn't the intent. The intent was just to save on costs. So Nina, what do you feel about just the entirety of the Olympic story? What do you feel about it going forward? Well, I don't think it should have pushed through. And I, I don't know why it's still really debatable at this point, given that we are now once again in a state of emergency, not just in Japan, but all over the world. So I think it was a wrong call. While I do see the value of sports and I see the reason why you'd want to continue such a tradition, you have to recognize that sometimes, you know, natural disasters and natural events should probably stop us from doing traditional things, right? We should probably rethink certain strategies and certain options we have as a society and as a global community. But regarding the U.S., for example, I think that given that the U.S. has a lot to deal with, it's also understandable why sports has taken the backseat. A lot of their star players couldn't get to practice because of restrictions. There were a lot of limitations in terms of travel. So I can see why a lot of countries, not just the U.S., would, would be, you know, not in their A-game or not prepared at all for the Winter uh, winter Olympics, for this Olympics in, in, this, in this regard. But I think what's interesting to me is really the Nintendo Labo beds. Um, when I first read it, I think that, you know, it was ridiculous thinking that they were anti-sex. But now that, you know, people have clarified what they were really for, it makes more sense now. But I read an interesting article, actually, that the fact that people's first instinct was about sex and sports and the connection of the Olympics with sex seems to be like something that people tend to focus a lot on. Um, while it was true, for example, that a lot of people received free condoms during the last Olympics or previous Olympics, um, I don't think it's really relevant to fixate on the sex lives of these sports individuals, right? Like they, they should do what they want to do. And I don't think that Japan had an intention of really stopping that from taking place or even interfering in the first place. Um, I also read this interesting article that claimed that just because it's Japan, why is it that people were automatically thinking of sexy times, right? I, like, there seems to be a fetishization angle to this, but I don't really understand it myself. Would you get that in any way, Kyle? Like, do you see the connection in any way? I don't understand why just because it was Japan, people immediately thought, oh, people are going to have sexy time um, in, in Japan because... There, to be honest, like there are many places where that Sexy would be time. more appropriate. <laughs> Sexy time yeah. can happen anytime. Yeah, it's it's anytime. So it shouldn't just be like just because it's in a specific place, like this is the first thing that you should think of. But at the same time, I'm not sure if it is truly fetishization. 
um, that of Japan or Asians in general, it might be more about the fact that we are all isolated right now. So we might just be craving intimacy in general. So not really specific to the country or the place or the time. It's just more of like, wow, we finally have an opportunity to do things that <laughs> we couldn't have. So maybe that's it. So anyway, that was a long episode um, because a lot of things happen apparently. Like, have you tried matter loading every day for a week? Because Jay has. And they read like actually 72 quite... articles, I heard. Like 72 articles. Yeah, so that's the reason why the, the episode was quite long. But I had fun recording it because I feel like I felt like I grew <laughs> from this episode. I felt like I learned stuff. Yeah, I also got the matter load, so that's good. I'm um, not that we're super active in the circuit nowadays, but you know, if we ever become active, this will be useful. And if you're listening and you're active in the circuit, then hopefully this was helpful for you as well. So that's it for our first ever episode of Matter Loading with Nina and Kyle. We hope you enjoyed. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye bye.